0: Hope you're in Exodus chapter 28. Um, we're going to look at this chapter this morning. We're going to spend um, about three weeks, possibly, maybe, maybe two. We'll see how next week shapes up. But we're going to spend um, two to three weeks talking about the priesthood of the Old Testament. How many people um, in the room today or even online have heard the saying, the clothes make the man? Anybody heard that? It's an interesting origin story to that saying. I mean, it goes actually way back, 15th century almost, but, but it was, you know, once it was attributed to Mark Twain and a world-famous world famous author, as you know, um, and, and, and Mark Twain, we, some people thought that he was the one that made it up, and he didn't, and some people even thought there was a Catholic priest by the name of Aramis, um that made it up, and he used it, but he didn't make it up, so it goes far back, and the quote can be misleading, because the clothes do not make the man, But the clothes can, not always, but sometimes communicate something to us about the man. In fact, the saying was used basically when you saw wealthy people, they typically dressed like wealthy people. And so you could tell what kind of person they were based on the clothes that they were wearing. So the clothes don't make the man, but you can learn something about the man. Like, you can learn that I really like city lights. Because I got a City Light polo and I got City Light face mask. And you can say, okay, this guy really likes City Light church. Not sure if he's a member there, but I know he likes it, right? And so in this first part of our multi-part mini-series in our sermon series through Exodus, we're, we're going to look at the garments of the priesthood. The clothes of the priest indeed does communicate something to us about the priest. Looking at verse 1, it says, Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve as, serve me as priest. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu and Eleazar and Ithamar, And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. And you shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with a spirit of skill that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checker work, a turban, and a sash." They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. Real quickly, let me pause at this point and highlight um, a couple of points that stand out, at least in these first six verses for me. The first point is is that Aaron's appointment is God's doing, not Aaron's. Aaron's calling is not established based upon his own doing. His his calling is appointed, or rather, his role is appointed to him by God. God tells Moses, bring near to me, Aaron. Over and over again throughout Scripture, we see God making clear that he is the one who is who is doing the appointing and doing the calling. He calls out Moses from the wilderness to lead his people out out of Egypt. He calls out David from watching after flocks to rule as king over his people. He calls out Paul from the evils of literally persecuting his church to spread the gospel and increase his church and his church's reach. In fact, Paul says in Galatians chapter one, verse one, Paul an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Not from man, not through man. Even this man, Paul is saying, but through Jesus Christ, I've been made an apostle. Our role in God's kingdom are not a matter of willpower or passion or even talent. Our roles in God's kingdom are a matter of calling, divine calling. And we should never leave appointment into kingdom leadership to our own inventions and assessments and ingenuity. Now it's all good to have good systems and it's all good to have good assessments and processes in place to pick leaders, but we should not leave our work solely to those things. Our work to pick leaders and put leaders and, and, and put skilled men and women in places in the kingdom must be covered in prayer in order that they might be ordered by God himself, because it is God who ultimately does the calling. You understand that? Second thing that jumps out to me in the, ver- in the first six verses is that God's appointment comes with God's equipping. God's appointment comes with God's equipping. And so we see Aaron bring Aaron to me, and then we look at verse three and we hear this. You shall speak to all the skillful, Whom I have filled with a spirit of skill, that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. Notice that the skillful that will be appointed to design these garments from Aaron aren't, or for Aaron, aren't just skillful by chance. They are skillful because the Lord has. Filled them with a spirit of skill to serve and advance his kingdom. Who would have thought that people designing clothes was actually not just designing clothes based on just sheer talent or sheer passion, but in fact, Oftentimes, they are designing clothes because God has, in fact, gifted them with the spirit of skill to design those clothes. How many skillful people do we have in this room that are not just talented, but are talented because they are filled with a spirit of skill to serve the Lord in whatever way that God has skilled them to do so, or God has gifted them to do so? There are some that jump ahead of God's calling and appoint themselves when he has not called them or equipped them, but there are probably out there even more that are sitting down on God's calling to move and serve in his kingdom, gifted by his spirit in supernatural ways that his kingdom can be served and advanced through. There are some... Spirit-filled Armani's, skilled in producing and designing, skilled in singing, skilled in production, skilled in administration, skilled in all sorts of different things. The question we have to ask ourselves is, what skill has God gifted me with? Number one, and number two, Am I using that skill for his divine purposes? Am I using those skills to advance his kingdom? Verse 28, I mean, chapter 28, verse 2, it says, you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. Verse 4 says, these are the garments that you shall make, a breast piece, an ephah, a robe, a coat of checker work, a turban, and a sash. You notice know this as a fly outfit when you get a sash with it. They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother and his sons to serve me as priest. Notice the words that we hear regarding these garments in verse two. "Holy, glorious, beautiful. Holy, glorious, beautiful." The priest, through his garment, was reflecting God back to the people. Holy garments, glorious garments, beautiful garments. One look at the priest, and you know what he represented. You knew what he represented, rather. One look at the priest, and you knew where he belonged. He belonged in the holy place based on the garments alone. The clothes didn't make the man, but the clothes said something about the man. In fact, these clothes, these garments, are replications of the, temple, of the tabernacle garments. Fresh white linen. Scarlet threads woven in, purple threads woven in, blue threads woven in. Remember when we looked at the curtains of the tabernacle, what did we see? It's all the same things, purple, red, linen. What the priestly garments show us is that one of the main goals of the priest was to reflect the one in which he was approaching and worship. God is holy. So the clothing reflected holiness. God is glorious. Glorious meaning weighty, heavy. So the clothes reflected heaviness, gravity, glory, weightiness. God is beautiful. So the clothing reflected beauty. The clothing was beautiful. David said in Psalm 27 and 4, one thing I ask that I will seek. To see your beauty. God is beautiful. David also says in Psalm 63, So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. God is glorious. Finally, in Psalm 29, verse 2, David says, Ascribe to the Lord the glory, do his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor, ESV renders it, but other translations render it the beauty of his holiness, glory, beauty, holiness. That's what the priest is reflecting in his spirit-filled garments. Verse six, it says, and they shall make the ephod of gold, of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and a fine twined linen, skillfully worked by one who is filled with a spirit of skill. It shall have two shoulder pieces attached to its edges so that it may be joined together and the skillfully woven band on it shall be made like it and be of one piece with it of gold, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. They shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel. Six of their names on the one stone and the names of the remaining six on the other stone in the order of their birth. Skipping down to verse 12, it says, and you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel, and Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. Now, there's a lot of speculation about what an ephod actually looks like No one has really been able to come to any consensus, but just picture it as almost like an apron of sorts. And on this dazzling and beautifully made apron, there are two shoulder pieces to it. And on those two shoulder pieces are are stones, and those stones on each one of them have six of the 12 tribes written on them. So as Aaron walked into the tabernacle, he was carrying the entire nation with him on his shoulders. All the tribes were on his shoulders as he made atonement in the tabernacle on their behalf. It was a memorial to the Lord that served as a reminder of his covenant with the tribes of Israel. It It was a call every time Aaron went in to the covenantal relationship that God had established with the tribes of Israel. It was a memorial. It was intended to be to serve as remembrance. And you look at verse down, skipping down to verse 15, and we look at the breast piece. It says this, you shall make a breast piece of judgment in skilled work. In the style of the ephod, you shall make it of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen shall you make it. It shall be squared and doubled, a span its length and a span its breadth. You shall set in it four rows of stones, a row of sardius, and topaz, and carbuncle. I'm sorry, carbuncle. You shall, shall be the first row. And the second row, an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond. In the third row, jacinth, jacinth an agate, and, ameth- and amethyst. In the fourth row, a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. They shall be set in gold filigree, there shall, there shall be 12 stones with their names, according to the names of the sons of Israel. They shall be like signets, each engraved with its name for the 12 tribes. Again, breast piece, square in shape, a little smaller than a piece of notebook paper. Span is about nine inches. So nine inches tall, nine inches wide. And just like Every other article of clothing worn by this priest, this was a beautifully adorned garment. In fact, the same threads that the ephod, the same threads that the breast piece um, are composed of are the threads that what? The tabernacle was composed of. Remember, holy, glorious, Beautiful the qualities that God intended to be reflected in the priestly garments. Now, as you look at the jewels that are mentioned here, bear in mind that there is some debate on the actual translation, meaning that we don't know 100% if all the jewels listed were in fact the jewels on the breast piece, but we do know it was intended to paint a spectacular picture of color and beauty, and, and the priest was supposed to be blinged out in order to be distinguished from everybody else. But more than that, the priest again was displaying all sorts of symbols and signs with these worn elements. In verse 21, it says, there shall be 12 stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. They shall be like signets, each engraved with its name for the 12 tribes. So now we have what? The shoulder stones, six tribes on each stone. Now we have Breastpiece with twelve jewel stones, and the twelve tribes engraved on the twelve the twelve stones. Verse twenty nine says, "So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord, just like the stones on his shoulders." that are attached to the ephod and carry the names the names of the 12 tribes were intended to show Aaron bearing the load for the nation. The jewels were intended to serve as well as a reminder that these people were God's people, a people that he had established covenant with. The jewels, like the stones on his shoulder, were a message to the Lord, remember us, save us, cleanse us, keep us. This is a similar message that we bring to God in our own prayers. Remember me, remember us, save me, save us, cleanse me, cleanse us, keep me, keep us. We are asking the Lord in prayer to not look past us. Pass me not, O gentle Savior, hear my humble cry. While on others thou art calling, do not pass me by. Several times in this text, in this text here, we hear words like this verse 28, 29, Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart. On his heart. You hear it again in verse 30, they shall be on Aaron's heart. Thus, shall, thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord. Regularly. Three times you hear it in that text. On his heart, on his heart, on his heart. As the representative of the people, it was his calling to carry the people on his heart when he walked in to make atonement on their behalf. This is, the, this is the responsibility of any leader in the church, to bear on his heart the people and their burdens and to take those cares to the Lord. But may our hope to perfectly carry our burdens before the Lord never be placed in the hands of fallible men who God appoints to lead. Your hope cannot be placed on leaders. Yes, it is their calling to bear those things on their heart, but they cannot do it in a perfect way. There is another high priest, a perfect high priest who holds us near his heart as well and makes perfect intercession for us. And you can trust that in the deepest and darkest moments in in your life and in my life, we are on his heart. You can trust that in the moments where your sin has taken you farther away than you ever thought you would be. And taken you farther away than you ever wanted to be. You are still on his heart. Heart and he is calling you and making provision for you to return back to him again. This is what one theologian says about this passage about the breast piece and and its ties back to Jesus. He says, Quote, when God looks upon the great high priest, he beholds his people upon his heart as well as upon his shoulders. Adorned with all the beauty of the one on whom his eye ever rests, with perfect delight. And with what joy does he so present them before God? for they are those for whom he has died and whom he has cleansed with his own most precious blood, those whom he has made the objects of his own love and whom finally he will bring to be forever with him. End quote. We are on his heart. These precious stones also were intended to communicate that these 12 tribes whose names were inscripted on those stones, were God's treasure. Twelve tribes written on precious jewelry. God cherishes his people. Though we waver, though we fail in a host of ways, we are deeply and richly loved by God. Exodus 19 in verse 5, it says, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. Psalm 135 says, For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel, as his own possession. Other translations, treasure. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, a.k.a. treasure. But there's something else at work here even when we look at these stones. Nearly all of these stones show up in two other particular places in Scripture. Ezekiel highlights the first place for us. In Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 13, he says, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, topaz, diamond, beryl, on- onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle. And Crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. In Eden were these stones. As Ezekiel is called to speak a word of lament for what once was over the king of Tyre, he gives us this statement. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your Covering. So the stones placed across the heart of the high priest were, like so many other elements, a reminder to Israel. Not only of the people and the covenant they had established with God, but it was a reminder of what was lost, Eden. Same thing we see in the tabernacle. But again, this is not the only place where we see these stones. We see them elsewhere. Revelations chapter 21 Verse 19 and 20, the foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. Guess what kinds of jewels are on those walls? These. The foundations of the walls of the new city, the new Jerusalem would be adorned with these precious jewels. Stones. So again, as we have seen with the construction of the tabernacle, even the garments of the priests are intended to tie together God's complete plan of redemption from Eden to the tabernacle and from the tabernacle to Christ and the new heavens and the new earth and the new city. One more thing I want to show you in Revelations because there are some significant differences surrounding the circumstances by which the jewels appear in Eden, and the jewels appear in the tabernacle, and the jewels appear in Revelation. Right after he talks about the foundation of the, foundation of the walls being made with these precious stones, he then says this, John says this, verse 22 of 21. And I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Verse 27 says, or verse 25 says, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. Verse 27, but nothing unclean will ever enter enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Unlike what we are reading in Exodus, no more tabernacle was needed for God's presence to dwell. These jewels go into a tabernacle, but the next time we see these jewels, the tabernacle will be God himself. The Lord was the temple. He was the tabernacle. His unbridled presence covers and rests upon the new city. When we see these jewels in the Old Testament, they go in to ensure that the light is, the, 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 the light of the, the light, the lamp, in the, the, the lamp in the tabernacle is eternally lit or is forever lit. But the next time we see these jewels, there will be no more lamps. Because the lamps are no longer needed for the glory of God through Christ will be the light that shines every day. Its gates will never be closed. These jewels in the Old Testament go into a place that's restricted. But the next time we see these jewels on the foundations of the new walls, it will be surrounding gates that never close because everyone in the city has been cleansed by Christ through faith and are no longer ceremonially or morally unclean. And that includes every nation. This tabernacle has certain people that can even go into it. You have to be born of a certain race or a certain ethnicity from a certain nation in order to go into it. But the next time we see these jewels, it will be for every nation to enter wide open gates. Because no longer will we we have entrance based on nationality. We will have entrance based on faith in Christ. And we will no longer be separate people. We will be one new people. The breast piece points us to what Israel currently had with God, covenantal relationship. But the breast piece also points us back to what we had with God, Eden, free of sin, free of shame, basking in the presence of God unmitigated. And the breast piece points us back, points us ahead to what we will inherit in the new city. The the, the, the moment in the time where the temple construction is not needed because God himself is the dwelling place. And the high priest is Christ. And we are of the royal priesthood. Looking at verse 30 with me. And in the breastpiece of judgment, you shall put the Urim and the Thummim, and and they shall be on Aaron's heart. And when he goes in before the Lord, thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. This is an interesting piece here, these, these tools, if you will. We don't even know if they're stones. We don't know what they are. Some scholars see them almost like holy dice, if you will. So they could be stones, they could be jewels, they could be holy dice, they could be a magic eight ball, I don't know. We don't know a whole lot about, about, about what, is, what, is, what, these, what these tools are. We just know that they are used to exercise judgment and make decisions for Israel. On several occasions, we see Nehemiah mentioning these tools to make decisions. We, we hear about King, Saul, and David using these tools to make decisions. And so the priests handle these tools, and they are given divine direction by God to make decisions on behalf of the nation with these tools. One scholar puts it this way. He says, we know concerning the Urim and the Thummim, That permission to inquire of the Lord through the priests by means of the urim and thummim in the pouch of the ephod was granted only to the person standing at the head of the people and only on matters of public concern. That's one thing we know. The second thing he says that we know is that the inquiry related to matters that human beings could not possibly know. The third thing that we know is that the question had to be so formulated as to make only one or, two, one or two answers possible, yes or no, the first matter or the second matter. The fourth thing that we know about these is that the two or more inquiries could not be made simultaneously. The answer was given to one question only, so they ask one question at a time and they refer to these tools and they get the answer. And then the fifth thing we know is that the reply was given by lot as the expressions casting and taking lots indicate. And so this tool, that's, that's, that's basically what we know about this tool. Now, some of us here in the room and right now saying to ourselves, man, I wish I had that. I wish I had a, you know, this holy magic eight ball that I could shake for all my decisions and figure out what direction to go. And I would use it to make all the important decisions in my life. Well, Let me read another scripture to you. Hebrews chapter one, verse one through two. says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. In other words, through the son of God, we have been given guidance by God. In particular, as the sun is revealed through scripture, we have been given guidance by God. So maybe you don't have the magic eight ball to shake. Maybe you don't have the Urim or the Thummim, but you have a Bible that you need to Read. In order to have guidance for your life, in order to navigate this world accurately and properly in a way that will bring glory to God and that will free or that will keep you from harm and danger that the enemy has set before you. Not only that, but the Bible says that he gave us his spirit to lead us. So we have the word of God and we have the spirit of God. And we have the revelation of the Son of God. In other words, you have all the tools, as Scripture says, for life and godliness. You have what you need. We just have to use what we have. Rely upon what we have. Fall on our face in prayer, asking for the Spirit's guidance. Dive in our word routinely to see, to have our lives directed and and, and ordered properly. So, yes, these tools were shadows. They were not the answer. They were shadows of something greater to come. You have the greater tools. <laughs> Lastly, in all of this glory we see in this text, in the, the glory, the beauty, the holiness of these garments. This one man, he goes in on behalf of the whole nation, carrying the nation on his shoulders and in his heart. He advocates, he speaks on behalf of that nation. It's a glorious picture, except for this one fact, that that man is sinful. That there was never a high priest that went into that space unblemished. That even he himself had to make had to make um, sacrifice for himself, because he too was flawed when he went into that place, went into that tabernacle. In fact, what's interesting about Aaron is Aaron gets disappointment. All right, Aaron gets disappointment he gets all glamored up, you know, they get, you know, they give him these great garments, right? So he is fresh, he's clean, right? And like literally a couple of chapters later, he's building a golden calf for, for, for Israel. It's, it's, it's just wild, right? He gets, he gets this crazy, glorious calling, and a couple of chapters later, he's building an idol and... Constructing an idol for Israel. His sons get appointed to this task. You know, because Aaron has these, has these two sons, Nadab and, and Abihu. And it's not too long before those guys do something crazy too. Offer up strange fire to the Lord, unauthorized fire to the Lord. They're struck dead because of their disobedience. In other words, as glorious as this picture is and as glorious as these garments are, they are worn by flawed men. And thus, no matter how glorious these garments were, they could not keep sinful men from sinning, even the most honored among them. So God does something about it. And what does he do? he sends his own priest. Born of Virgin Mary, living a perfect life, in obeying the law at every step, teaching with authority, telling the storms and the waves to cease, calling upon disciples to follow, And then giving his own life on behalf of not only those disciples, but all of the world as the sinless lamb of God. In other words, because of the flaws of all these other priests that came before him, all of the other Aaron's, all of the other high priests, God sends his own high priest, his very own son, For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later, then the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. He went one time and offered himself. And he never had to go back again. Resurrected with all power in his hand. And not only, and not only did he fulfill the call perfectly of high priests, but he then made us royal priesthood, according to 1 Peter. No longer having to wait on someone else to go to God on our behalf. We don't need fancy clothes to go in. Now we can go to God with our city light polos and blue jeans. And we can seek the face of God. Why? Not because not because my jeans are fly because they're not why? Because Christ. Christ went before me so now I can go. No, the clothes do not make the man, but Christ does. Christ has made us all. And thus we have all the reason to rejoice. Amen. Amen. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. God, we love you and we thank you.